This podcast is produced by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society. CDSS provides programs and resources like this podcast that support people in building and sustaining vibrant communities through participatory dance, music, and song. Want to support this podcast and our other work? Visit cdss.org to donate or become a member today. This podcast is produced by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society. CDSS provides programs and resources like this podcast that support people in building and sustaining vibrant communities through participatory dance, music, and song. Want to support this podcast and our other work? Visit cdss.org to donate or become a member today. One and a half around. Now below one couple and four with six. Look around to the right when you're balanced. Look around to your right and you're balanced. Swing your partner. Hey there, I'm Mary Wesley, and this is From the Mic, a podcast about North American social dance calling. Nicely done. Through conversations with callers across the continent, we'll explore the world of square, contra, and community dance callers. Why do they do it? How did they learn? What's their role on stage and off in shaping our dance communities? What can they tell us about the corner of the dance world that they know and love the best? Each episode, we'll talk to a different caller, but they all have something in common. A spark. A desire to lead, to share joy, to invite movement, to stand in that special place between the band and a room full of dancers, or people who don't yet know that they're dancers. And from the mic, say, find a partner. Let's dance. Hi there, from the mic listeners. Welcome back. Today, we're joined by the most wonderful David Smuckler, a dance caller, scholar, organizer, choreographer, teacher, champion of chestnuts. The list goes on. David joined me over Zoom from his home in Syracuse, New York. Behind him in the background, I could see rows and rows of books about dance, music, and song. He grew up singing folk songs with his mom and began dancing contras in New Hampshire as a teen. In 1981, he was drafted to call for his local dance and has been calling ever since. David calls contras, squares, English country dances, and family and community dances. It seems to me that David never tires of finding new ways to participate in and contribute to the dance community. He's been a longtime board member of the Syracuse Country Dancers. He helped create an innovative Central New York gathering for callers, as well as the world's first Contra Prom. He's a retired, inclusive early childhood and childhood educator. He's also taught for years at the college level in a teacher preparation program. Not a surprise, David has frequently used dance and song in his teaching, both with children and adults. Well, maybe sometimes his students are surprised. A teacher through and through, David believes that people can always learn and grow. 
While welcoming, I would say embracing change and evolution, David has enormous respect for the value of folk traditions. In 2008, with David Millstone, he co-authored the CDSS publication, Cracking Chestnuts, the living tradition of classic American contradances. As if this wasn't enough, after serving two previous terms on the CDSS board in the early 2000s, David has recently returned for another term and is next in line to serve as board president. CDSS, you're lucky to have him. I'm so excited to share our interview with you. Just a heads up, the first 10 minutes or so will sound a little bit muffled, but we made adjustments so the rest of the recording will be clearer. Here's David. Greetings. Hello, David Smuckler. Welcome to it's From the Mic. To be here. I'm so glad to be speaking with you today. I love your your backdrop that I'm seeing on in our Zoom call. I, you seem like maybe you're surrounded by dance books, if I had yeah, to make a song guess. Song and dance, yep. Song and dance. It looks like you're in good company there. A cozy place to be on a fall day. Um, well, as I think you know, this podcast is dedicated to talking with dance callers, uh, particularly people who call North American dance styles and traditions, focusing on contra and square, um, community style dancing. Um, you call some of all of those styles, I believe, and more. <laughs> so uh, I was very excited to to get to chat with you a little bit today. Um, you are certainly someone who has been an influence on me as a caller. We, I know that we share a love of chestnuts, New England chestnuts. I, I was doing a little bit of looking around your website to prepare for this interview, and I went down a wonderful 30-minute uh, rabbit hole looking at all the different <laughs> Money Musk videos and recordings that you have on your website. Um, and seeing familiar faces. And I, I, I'm in a few of them, which I felt <laughs> felt honored to be. So um, I've come to some of your, your caller gatherings in Syracuse. So anyway, we've got lots, lots in common. And I also have never sat down and sort of started from the beginning and gotten to have a bit more in-depth conversation, which is what this, this podcast makes space for. So so here we go. Um, I usually start just asking people to share a little bit about how they got into this world, whatever the starting point was for you, whether it's dancing, was it in your family? What kind of lit the match for you? So um, I guess I started in being interested in folk music as a kid. My mom played guitar and, uh, and I, we grew up with a lot of that music in the house. Um, and uh, I went to summer camp in southern New Hampshire, and um, we used to have people come to the camp and do dancing with us, like uh, Dudley Lofman used to come and dance with the kids. And uh, when I was a, a counselor in training at CIT, the exciting thing to do on our nights off was to go to the contra dance the, nearby. There were um, there was a dance. I, I don't remember if it was, it might've been Francistown or one of those. And we would, you know, stand on one side of the hall and 
anxiously wonder if we'd get partners. Um, so that was my first uh, American contra dance kind of experience. Um, then in college, I went to Oberlin, which has since become kind of a hotbed of this kind of dance. A lot of Pinewoods kids end up at Oberlin for some reason. Um, and there was a, a guy there named Rodney Miller, who was one of my classmates. And so, and I recognized him from some of the dances in New, New England that I'd been going to. So I, I just got more and more connected over time to that kind of dancing and really interested in it. I moved after college to the Boston area and it was, there was a lot of dancing. Uh, Ted Sinella, Tony Parks was becoming popular. Um, there, there was just lots of, of dancing for me to go to and, and learn from. So I didn't start calling yet then. I, I, um, I started calling uh, when I lived in Salem, Mass, I used to go to our local contra dances there, which were in Salem and later in Beverly. And the caller was uh, Sarah Gregory Smith, who was a close friend. And um, Sarah and, and her husband, Bill, used to go away for the summers. And some of the local dancers wanted to keep the dance going. So I was recruited. Uh, the dancers said, oh, come on, David, you know all these dances. You can." So that's how I first got into it. Sarah kind of mentored me. And uh, I started calling. I, I don't think I was very good at it, but I stumbled through and, uh, you know, gradually learned more just from doing. And Sarah always called squares as well as contras. So that's how I was brought up as a caller is that an evening of, of dance meant contras and squares. Um, later, I moved to where I live now in Syracuse and the local dance was just all modern contra dances, all duple and proper or Beckett and uh, no squares, no triplets, no circles, no, you know, and I was just used to a different kind of culture of, of what a dance was. So when I started calling here, it was a, a yet another adjustment to, to figure out um, how to call in a way that would please the local dancers. And meanwhile, start slipping in <laughs> some squares or triplets or whatever that, um, I thought would be winning ones and that people would like to do. So, huh, what else is in my origin story here that I can tell you? I, I used to do international dance as a teen um, on the steps of the art museum in Philadelphia, where I grew up. Um, there are these landings, if you remember the Rocky movie where he's running up those steps that and we would meet right on one of those landings and someone had a battery operated uh, phonograph and that was our music. And uh, we would do Troika and Miserlou and that sort of repertoire. Um, so that was also some of my early dancing. So it sounds like uh, participating in social 
dance and music has been yeah, a through I, I line. Just, there's something that I really liked about it. Uh, when I went at Oberlin, we had to, we had a physical education requirement and uh, one of the options was square dancing. So I thought, well, sure, I'll do that. And again, it was kind of very different from what I was used to as a record player and, um, you know, uh, very cornball sort of 50 squares. But I had fun. I liked doing that. And thankfully, that uh, that didn't become an impediment oh, no. <laughs> for your continued interest in square dancing, which for for some, it didn't yeah. it didn't go that way. So <laughs> I'm glad that it it was enjoyable. Um, can you share more about when you first started learning to call? And and it sounded like Sarah was was a mentor in many ways, and I wonder what that mentorship yeah, looked like. She, so. So I don't know if you know Sarah very well, but she, um, while we were living with Sarah and Bill, Laurel and I, um, and they got married around the same time. So that's one thing. And we were very close friends. Uh, I actually moved to Salem to work uh, with Bill in a woodworking shop. And um, Sarah was losing her vision around that time. So by the time we were in Salem, she was really completely blind. And I think her calling definitely improved <laughs> as she lost her vision, which was really interesting to me. Um, she, she just became very aware of the floor because she, she felt a need to. So she, she would do things like um, point to the far left corner of the room and say, you in that square, what you're having some trouble. Like she could, she could hear that. And she'd say, you know, do you want another walkthrough for that group? Um, she was just very tuned in, uh, because of her lack of vision. And I don't know if she might've had spies in the band telling her stuff, but I think she was just really listening. Um, and and she was a, a very um, warm caller, just very, very inviting voice and very, um, very warm. And she had a repertoire that was um, lots of the classics, lots of the kind of easier, straightforward squares, and a lot of the hot new dances of that time which were kind of the some of the zesty contra repertoire from Larry Jennings' book. And I don't know, so that's what I started with, is, is, is just trying to do the dances that she's, she was already doing so that the dancers would be familiar with the style and the repertoire. Occasionally, we would get people dropping in on our dance who were quite good callers, and so that was nerve wracking as a new caller to see, you know, suddenly I'm, I'm calling a singing square that I learned from Todd Whittemore and there's Todd on the floor. And I, and I would freeze, you know, I can really remember a moment to this day where I was doing the walkthrough and I completely had no idea what came next. 
And, you know, I've never really liked to depend on having my notes with me. And I, I made it a point of pride for a while not to. I've gotten myself in enough trouble that I do have them available, but I don't tend to refer to them. Um, but anyway, that was one example of, I had no idea what it was and everybody was waiting and I was there frozen on stage and all eyes were on me. <laughs> it's just your nightmare, you know? And I'm looking pleadingly at yep. God, what comes next? <laughs> I mean, I didn't say that, but I'm just, he could, must have known from my face. And finally he took pity on me and told me what came next. And the dance went on and it was fine. In that in that process of becoming a caller, I'm wondering, did you did you immediately like calling when you when you stepped from the from the dance floor up to the mic? Um, yes, I loved it. I didn't feel like I was that good at it at first, but I still loved it. It was wonderful to uh, be in that space where I'm interacting with a band interacting with the dancers and just feel like I'm making this magic thing happen. It's just so fun. And I think there were times when I could fill a role that no one else could fill. I, uh, I think I told you the story once before about being the hip on which a baby could rest because nobody else had a free hip the musicians arms were full of their instruments and the dancers were busy so while i was calling i i got to do that and um it was a crowd that often had kids and so they would be bedded down in the corners on piles of coats um, while we danced but anyway yeah i loved that that standing in that place <laughs> where the caller stands um i i often felt like I loved also that I was bringing forward a tradition that that I was calling dances, some of which were hours old and others of which were decades old and others of which were hundreds of years old. I just think that's so cool. Um, and I've always loved that and I continue to love that. Mm -hmm. As you were, you know, you've mentioned traveling and, and moving between different dance communities and noticing different um, preferences and, and even just traditions within a dance community, you know, with Salem being, uh, being quite the norm to call a variety of, of formations and, you know, squares or triplets thrown in, um, yep. Syracuse being uh, excited at a moment in time when that community was excited about zesty contras, you know, sort of new choreography. And how did you kind of find your own space uh, and balance your taste and kind of what you perceived the taste of, of your communities to be? Because the caller has a little bit of, of influence in in shaping those uh, experiences for a group? So when I came here, um, the first time I said on the mic, next dance will be a square, there was an audible groan and a number of people sat down and it was it didn't feel good. 
And I persisted. I said, no, we'll do this square and then we'll do some more of the other stuff. And it took me aback. So a friend of mine, another caller here, and I kind of sat down together and plotted, you know, if we want people to be more accepting of squares, which squares should we use? Like which ones keep everyone moving, feel like they have enough swinging in them, like would feel exciting to contra dancers. And we kind of strategically picked squares and we, we um, offered them at particular times. And I will say there, there is one dancer to this day who very politely doesn't make noise about it, but you know, when I announce a square, he, he will sit down. And uh, I have seen him dance a square when someone had already asked him to dance and he didn't want to be rude. But, but generally, he's very good about sussing out when there'll be squares and he won't dance them. But, you know, I'd say the rest of our community have become converts that we pick their dances carefully and, um, and introduce them and won people over. Uh, so I'm pleased that we sort of have over time developed a community that's very accepting. If I want to throw a chestnut in, they are game. If I say triplet, three couple long ways, people line up and happily, and they'll, they'll pretty much do anything with only one or two exceptions. And even those people are very polite about it. They don't, um, they don't groan <laughs> anymore. So that's great. Um, now, you know, having said that, it's a, it's a, a negotiation, I would say, between the dancers and the caller. It's not that I have entirely imposed my particular set of tastes on the, the locals, right? They, um, and the example I can use of this is the clapping in Petronella um, that is something that I don't mind, but I never would do because I didn't grow up doing it and it's not my particular preference. But, you know, people do that and it, it doesn't matter how much I say something like, you know, it's like having a, a smoking area in a restaurant. You can't really do that. If somebody claps, everybody's affected. Um, I can't really do that. Um, the, the dancing is just gonna include the clapping and people will do it joyfully and I'm all for that. So the tradition is not mine. I, I have my little corner of it and I do what I like and try and do it in a way that will please the dancers wherever I am. But it will develop the way the people want it to develop, the, the dancers on the floor. And as long as it's safe, I'm all for that. Yes, it's a, it sounds like you have a very kind of balanced approach to to navigating these scenarios. I I do in some ways see you as an advocate, a gentle advocate for for the that variety of of styles in in, in particular for chestnuts. I'm of course thinking of your cracking chestnuts book that you created with David Millstone. I believe that that began as a column in the CDSS news, but 
would you talk a little bit about about that work as well and and where it fits in yeah so when i first started dancing the repertoire was pretty narrow like you kind of knew what you were going to do every night you do hulls victory and chorus jig and maybe Roy O'Moore and definitely money musk and you know you would do sort of the same sets of dances over and over and a few squares um usually a singing one and some, maybe something else and um you know that's that's always what the dances would include. Um, I remember actually, I, I once went to Nova Scotia and went to a dance there and um, it was amazing. They, they all knew all their dances, so much so that the caller was entirely unintelligible. So the caller would say, and everyone would do something. And then he'd say, and everyone would do something else. It was, it was delightful, you know, but since I didn't know any of those dances, people were pushing me around and we were all having fun. But the dances I grew up with as a teenager in New England were similar, that everyone kind of knew what they were already. So, you know, dances that we now find difficult to teach because they're not the style anymore, they were just always done. And so everyone knew them. Um, so I, I really like those dances because they're what I grew up with. And so I started writing a column for the CDSS news at, I can't remember the exact date, but anyway, it ran for three years. Um, we did, um, 17 dances uh, in those because Money Musk took two, um, columns because we had so much to say about it. Um, and uh, each column was focused on a particular chestnut, some of them pretty common ones that we would do all the time and others less so, just historical contradances that are, were lesser known dances, but we could still call them chestnuts because they were old. Um, and each of the columns was an excuse to get on my soapbox and talk about something that mattered to me in dancing. So. You know, I talked about things like insider outsider stuff, you know, like the insiders would know that in lamplighters, you really had to come all the way back that that there was this real tendency to because you your swing was below you were already progressed when you did the swing and then you went down the center and back and cast off there was an a possibility that you would cast off with the wrong person you know you would turn it into a double progression so you know i would use the column as an excuse to talk about that you know how do you become an insider and and uh how do you how do you accept everybody at a dance when because that's really what we want to do um i talked about things like um I used the, the, the notion of balance and swing as saying, we want both of those things in our dance. We want a balance of styles and, and things like that. And we want zestiness, like we want the swing in there too. So I, I played with the language a little there. But I would, in each column, I would 
find a, a notion like that and use the dance as an excuse to to talk about things that I cared about in dancing. And that was what where the book really came from. It wasn't really a scholarly work on chestnuts. And in fact, we we put that disclaimer in the intro and uh, and I I still get people thinking that I'm an authority on historical dance and it's ridiculous. I I know so little compared to many people about it. But anyway, that was a great project. It was really fun. Um, so I like that repertoire and I include it still. I include some of those dances on a regular basis in our in our dance and people are used to them from me. Yeah, you know, I would just say that I, I'm a firm believer in the scholarship of everyday individuals, you know, drawing on their on their experience and their passions. And, and, you know, that is, that is what you and, and the other David <laughs> have created. And, and, and uh, I don't know if you actually identify with that, that title of advocate for, for chestnuts, but, you know, in many ways, I feel like that's how, how I received it. You, you conveyed um, something about the value and importance and, you know, joy of of these dances and it, it was um it, it was convincing because it came from from a personal experiential yeah. place you know so, yeah i mean we talk about the living tradition and we're all people who are part of that um so if it's really alive then then it's all of us and um I think that's so sweet. It's so lovely that that this tradition keeps going. So I am someone who likes all of that old stuff and likes all of the new stuff too. So I want it all. Um, and uh, I'm really interested in how choreography keeps developing and changing. Um, and I love trying to create dances that, that go somewhere else that, um, that we haven't tried yet. I wish I was more creative and could do it better, but, uh, sometimes I, I get there. Um, I also was very involved with the syllabi for the Ralph Page Dance Legacy Weekend for many years. I was their, um, historian or something like yes. that. Yes. Will you just briefly introduce that weekend? Yes. So that's a weekend that is part of NEFA that happens in Southern New Hampshire, or this year it's going to be in Massachusetts, but it's uh, a weekend every year uh, that's dedicated to the full range of the history of contra dance. So it, it has Typically, there's always a bunch of the chestnut repertoire represented there, and there'll be the latest interesting hot new moves and dances represented there as well. So it's people who really try and dance well, try and dance by dancing well, I, I think they mean dancing in a way that takes care of other dancers, that makes everyone move in synchrony 
Um, and the dances this weekend started to honor Ralph Page when he passed away. It started in 88, 1988. It's been going every year with the exception of those couple years recently that we don't count anymore. There's, they, they, they don't count. So I'm two years <laughs> younger than I think I am. Um, and it's um, for a big chunk of that time, uh, people had a syllabus created. Well, there were there was a syllabus being created when I first went that I had nothing to do with. And then at some point they were having trouble getting it done and I volunteered. And for, I don't know, maybe 20 years of the Ralph Page Dance Legacy Weekend, I created what we call the syllabus, but what it was was a record of what was danced, all the choreography. I would collect the names of the tunes that were done with it. There were workshops held there on different topics and I would write summaries of those workshops, just a record of what happened. And those are all available online um, through the Diamond Library at UNH collected them all. Um, and so it, it represents a big chunk of work. I mean, you can look through them and, and mine it for all kinds of interesting dances. So anyway, I did that as well. And I think that's part of what led to the Cracking Chestnuts is doing those syllabi it sparked my interest in the chestnuts. Um, and I also really loved doing them because I like your podcast, it was an opportunity for me to connect with a whole bunch of other callers because I would write to that to choreographers in particular and say, did I get it right? Do I do, can you fix my mistakes, please? And uh, people would then have conversations with me back and forth about um, their work. So I love that. More recently, so we had this couple years of pandemic, and I have had a couple of projects during that time for myself because I couldn't dance and I wanted to feed my um, dance and music habit. So I did a lot of choreography during that time, uh, wrote a lot of dances, and was unable to test them with actual people. But um, eventually I was, I've been able to test many of them, which meant that I could discard lots of the ones that weren't so good <laughs> uh, and keep the ones that I liked. Um, 
Another thing I really wanted to work on because there was a lot of conversation about it was um, as a personal challenge, I wanted to learn to call without using role names of any kind. So uh, I know that there's uh, what I think of as pretty unfortunate divisions in the community of times now uh, between people who really want the names to stay the same and others who really don't um, and want them to change. And um, my personal point of view on that is that I want to be able to dance <laughs> and I'm happy to dance and it doesn't really matter to me all that much what uh, how how the role names are used. But I did do think it's a really interesting challenge for me as a caller um, to think about how would I teach a dance without using them at all, um, just using positional language to uh, convey what I want. And is it possible to do that efficiently and clearly without um, frustrating the dancers? So I've been working on that and um, I'm 70% um, there. <laughs> I mean, if I go through my collection, there are lots and lots of dances where it's just trivial, it's easy. Um, there's a couple of things that you, I feel like start having to happen. Like um, most chains are right-hand chains. So I feel like you can just say chain. And if it's different, then you can indicate that. And the dancers that I've taught that way since starting this project have not had any trouble with that at all. If I say chain, the people who expect to chain do it and it's fine. Um, if I teach a chain to newcomers, same thing. I can teach if your right hand's free, you will buy and so forth. Sometimes, so you get a dance, uh, neighbors balance box the net, Alaman left once and a half as a start. Both of you have your right hands connected, so you both have your left hand free, but one of you is facing in and the other's facing out. So the correct person again is just going to be the person to do it. So I'm finding that that positional calling for me for lots and lots of my dances works fine. Um, there's so many ways to orient people that don't have to do with what you call them. So I just feel like it's easier than we think it is most of the time. And, and what do you hope that kind of offers for, for the dancers? Yeah, so I don't think it offers anything actually special for the dancers. I think first and foremost, it's, it's, it's a personal challenge for myself, but I do think that the, the space we've gotten ourselves into where there's a lot of conflict in many communities is just so unfortunate. Um, and so what it offers is actually um, a way to forward where I don't have to think about which community am I in. I can just call what I call and I'm not going to make anyone grumpy. I do have a commitment to doing all the dances in my collection. So I'm not going to avoid a dance just because it's harder to do um, positionally. 
but I am going to have to be very creative when I get to those. Um, and at this point, as I say, I, I, I have ways pretty much for everything in my collection, just some of them are cumbersome. Um, and some of them are less cumbersome than with role names. You know, if you start to say the first gent and the third third lady do a this around each, you know, after a while, it's hard to process all of that. And sometimes if you just say the outsides do this or the in a, in a mixer or a square, I've been experimenting more with insides and outsides as role names. It works pretty well. Like if you're doing a promenade in a circle mixer, outsides turn back, you know, or something like that works quite well. Yeah. It sounds like you're, I mean, language is, I think, super important for callers in general. And I wonder getting into a, kind of the nuts and bolts of, of calling a little bit, you know, are, are there parts of the process that, that intrigue you particularly? I mean, I think language is really important, not, not only in terms of um, role terminology, but, but also teaching and communication. You know, there's also considerations of, of working with the band and choosing a program I wonder if you might kind of just take us through some of those, um, you know, those different areas that are part of the caller role. Yes. So we were talking about how how much I got from being shepherded into the role by Sarah Smith, that her mentorship really helped me get started. And as part of thinking about that i've actually had mentees for all along the way i once i got to a certain point people i've started helping others to um start calling as well and i have two right now as a matter of fact um one english mentee and one control and um and i really like that because it makes me think about all this stuff that you're talking about in in great detail because they have questions like how, how do you do that and how does it all work right um and what words do you use when and as you can imagine the answer to so many questions is it depends right it depends so if i'm calling for a bunch of kids my goal is to just manage the chaos Right, it, like it's, I know there's going to be chaos. It's fine. Make it feel good to everyone who's there. That's that's my my goal. So I'm choosing dances where, you know, I I might choose a dance where it's a big circle. I did this once. I had this enormous crowd in um, Ottawa of families and kids and people who were three three people to a couple four people to a couple um three-year-olds 10-year-olds 80-year-olds like everybody there and it was just total madness and i thought what am i going to call next i had a list of dances and i didn't want it to look too much like the one before so i i said line up for a circle and we had this enormous circle in this space and um, we went in and out and circled left and right or whatever to start. And then I said, um, 
I can't remember how I did it, but I said, you know, if you're wearing red or something, run all the way around the outside of the circle to your back to where you started. You know, like I just was making this up on the spot. And that's perfectly legitimate in that situation. Everyone had a great time. They said, that was the best dance. How, where does that come from? <laughs> it was so funny. That was their favorite dance because it was just silliness. And, you know, uh, in that situation, that's what you want. People come to a workshop where they want to hear about the historical dances because of what I've done with those. And so the workshop might be, where did it come from? Like dances that have the Rory Moore spin in it. And so we do Rory Moore, and then we do another dance that's a modern dance that, that uses that in a clever way. And then we do, um, you know, contra corners and then we use a modern dance that uses that um so that's a whole different kind of audience and so your your language is different your your approach is different how much you talk is different it, you know in an evening dance it's a social dance the goal is to not talk too much you want to just get them going efficiently and let them have fun and they'll have fun if the dances are, I think, varied somewhat. If they're not all the same, then then there's something a little ooh, piquant about this next idea. You know, oh, now we're we're, we're doing Sackett's Harbor and you turn the set sideways. Oh my goodness, look at that. Um, so there's that, that's the overview in terms of like programming, thinking about that. Sometimes if it's, you know, a particular kind of community, I'm not going to do too much of that chestnut stuff. They don't want it from me. So I'll just, you know, uh, lean on dances from the 21st century, of which there are a million wonderful ones. There's no dearth of good dances, no matter what repertoire you uh, lean on. So that's the programming side. The language side is what words connect with people. It's amazing to me to say chain and watch what happens. Sometimes it's fine. You say chain, one word, you're done. There, there's, you know, four bars all taken care of. Um, Sometimes you say chain and people do all, you know, grand chain, is it, a, you know, like it's, it's people will interpret from whatever context they're used to. So you have to watch what happens when the words come out of your mouth and respond accordingly. And that's part of the fun of it all. Um, it's fun to watch the effect of a word on a, on a person or on a, a group. I danced recently to a caller who uses different words than I'm used to. And it was really interesting to watch the community go, huh? You know, as, as this person was trying out the words they wanted to use. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it, it, it's, a, it's a dance, <laughs> another kind of dance of, <laughs> yes. of you know, uh, which words kind of connect with this group and if it doesn't connect 
I'll try another one, but I don't want to talk too much. Like a conversation like we're having is wonderful self-indulgent thing to do for callers. We love doing this because when we're working, our goal is to talk less. So to give ourselves this opportunity to talk more about exactly, month, it's delicious. Yeah, and am I right that you do, well, you did just mention that you have several mentees and you've worked with mentees over the years. I, I think you also um, organize kind of gatherings for callers. I, I've been to one of those, um, yes. so, which is a wonderful offering. All right, so this is the- Because as you said, we, we like to self-indulge. <laughs> we do like it. So this started actually with triplets. We're talking about the upstate New York callers gathering. And the way this started was with an email conversation between David Millstone and me when email was pretty new. Uh, we were talking about Ted Sinella's triplets because I had been- asked to do a program of them at a at a weekend and i was trying to pick ones that like the squares we were talking about earlier ones that would please people who liked a lot of swinging that that would feel good to the what then was the modern contradancer um and so we came up with a nice program and somewhere in there david said something like it would be fun sometime to just dance through all 41 of them, wouldn't it? And I got that, I, I decided to run with that idea. So I said, yeah, let's do that. So we set up a workshop here in near in Syracuse um, where we were gonna try and dance through all 41 triplets and take notes about it. And David got excited about this too. So he, on the same, day did the same workshop in his kitchen in Lebanon, New Hampshire. And Lynn Ackerson got wind of this and she did the same thing. Um, on the West Coast? On the West Coast in California, um, did a, a triplet workshop where they were gonna dance through all 41 of them. So the other two groups, successfully danced through all 41 of them. My group didn't quite make it. We got through, you know, 30 something uh, because we talked too much. <laughs> uh, we, we would do the triplet. We would then sit down to dis discuss its ins and outs and then move on to the next one. And we took notes throughout the whole thing. And then all three groups compiled their notes. And this was the Ted's Triplet Marathon. There are still, you might see occasional people wearing a button that says, I was there, Ted's Triplet Marathon. Um, and the three groups all did the triplets. And so we liked it so much in Syracuse that every year since we've tried to have a um, callers workshop where people get together. And the idea is to focus on repertoire. So each workshop focuses on some chunk of dance repertoire that we're interested in. Like we might have one on English calling for country callers, you know, who want to get started, or squares, 
or um, the chestnuts we did a couple times, or um, dances of Jean Hubert, or you know uh, dances from the Zesty Contra collection. Um, and the reason we focus on repertoire is because we're trying to be different from uh, like the callers intensives that CDSS runs where they hire a really brilliant caller um, and then the students learn from this brilliant caller. Rather than have that model, we just have a more sort of democratic, everybody comes and we're all brilliant including the person who's been calling for a week. Uh, so we have people of every level from that to people who are, you know, like on our square dance one, Nils Fredlin came and, uh, and he was just another caller in the group. Uh, you came to our one of our chestnuts one, you were just another caller in the group. You weren't the amazing Mary Wesley from, you know. <laughs> uh, so that's the model as we're learning altogether from the repertoire by talking about it and the skill building that happens happens incidentally because when you get to geek out about this then you you say "Ooh, that's an idea and you might pick up ideas that you hadn't thought of no matter what level you are mm -hmm. um, i love hearing all the different ways that you're you're cultivating you know skills and community for callers and you know, your first answer when, when I asked about, uh, you know, the caller skill set or the toolbox is, is you said it depends, which is just kind of <laughs> almost anything that you're, any scenario you're trying to envision, you know, and that, cause that's, what's so, so interesting about our, our ecosystem in which we're working is it, we, we only have so much <laughs> control. And, uh, so I'm, I'm, curious when you're doing more one-on-one -on -one mentorship what how do you talk about and teach people or get them to that place where they can uh contend with all of the varying factors which will never <laughs> sure. be predictable so i i do try and distinguish between three things between how you would describe a dance, like for your own personal notes, what do you put in your notes? How would you teach that dance to a group? Um, and that, of course, depends a lot on the group. And then how do you prompt the dance once the music is going? And those are all very different things, like you, you have to really distinguish those. So when I have a new caller, I, I talk about that and try and help them come up with whatever's going to work for them as a system for their notes. And then I try and help them think about how would you teach that to our regular group, like just as a starting point, but the group you're used to dancing in, what do those people need, you know, and then later we can get into what do the five-year-olds need and what do the, the blind person need and what that sort of thing. Um, then I get into the prompting as well. Like we do all three simultaneously, but I think all three of those are so important and I have to think about them differently. Um, prompting is knowing where to place the word 
and which word and you know how to orient people like people think positional calling is new it's not we've always say face the next do si do you know or things like that um, where you orient the person before you tell them what to do um, and you do it with the fewest syllables necessary usually because it depends sometimes you want a few more syllables because it's going to fit the music you want the prompting to become part of the music so um you know we you, you have to think about well how many beats does it take to say x y or z and are there's there, there are probably 17 different ways you could say face the next and do si do but you know which one here do you just say do si do do you say go do you say um on to the next you know all of those are possible and all can be completely clear even though they're ambiguous when you just say them but in context they are clear. So, um, and I go back to that thing of when you're prompting, if you've taught it well and things are going smoothly, fewer words down to zero words is really good. Like as soon as you can drop out and not lose too many people, um, that's a good thing because then the musicians get to do their thing. Um, and that's where it really cooks. You know, yeah. that's like the good musician next to you is so nice. <laughs> and you just get to sit back and watch. We, we went to a dance uh, recently. Um, so we were not in my home community and we went to this dance and it was um, a day when we'd been walking around, we were jet lagged, it was, we were exhausted and we thought, well, we'll do a dance or two and then we'll go home. The, from the first four potatoes, we were totally in. This band was, it was two 20 somethings, guitar and fiddle with such incredible energy and skill and they just, lifted your feet, lifted your heart. Yeah, and I, I had the greatest time. Down the outside proper, circle four with a couple above. Up you come, cast off. Did you have a relationship with Ted Sinella? I'm always curious about kind of other other mentors or influences, just because it's nice to hear that. Definitely, he was definitely an influence. Yeah. And, you know, in the early Ralph Page weekends that I would go to, well, I, I'd see him, um, you know, in the Boston scene when he, I was first dancing, he was often the, behind the mic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's, uh, I, I loved 
his calling. He, you know, some people have a beautiful voice. Um, I don't particularly feel like I have a beautiful voice. I'm always envious of people with a really good instrument. Um, he didn't have a particularly beautiful voice, I don't think. And his timing was not super crisp. You know, he's not, he never had the, this total clarity that, you know, it's, there, there are other callers who, who do that better. He was so good at calling. He, it didn't matter any of that. He had, uh, I think, first of all, there's a personality coming across the mic. Um, and his personality was very um, upbeat and he wanted something from your, you as a dancer. He, he asked you to do something at, at every dance. He, he kind of said, he didn't say specifically this, it just came out in his calling. So I loved all that about him. And I, I definitely feel like that was an influence on, on what I wanted to do in my calling. I don't know if I get there, but that's something I, I really admired. Uh, I definitely was influenced a lot by Tony Parks. He was calling quite a bit um, when I was first calling. And Todd Whittemore had a series at the VFW Hall with um, the, the rocket in front of it. There's a dance he composed called Rocket Reel for that setting. Um, and he would wear a cowboy hat and do his yodeling and uh, at that time, he was a, a kind of young star, you know, and had a following, like people devoted to him would come to those dances and they were big dances. So those, those are people who I heard a lot. Um, I was impressed by Sarah in part because she was a woman. There weren't as many female voices at the time. Um, and she just held her own, just did, did great. Larry Jennings was certainly there and around and very influential. Um, he was quirky and uh, I, I had some interesting back and forth with him. Like I wrote a dance and I hope we'll talk more about the dances I write, but I wrote a dance way back when based on his dance called Give and Take. And uh, at the time, I forget, I've, I've renamed the dance because at the time I called it gents give ladies take or something like that because I was reversing his give and take where he conceptualized the figure as men bringing women back to their side of the line for a swing and I thought well let's turn that on its head and have the women bring the men back and and um, I will claim that I'm the first person to do that. I, lots of dances do that now but um, but I did that and I showed it to Larry and I thought, oh, he's going to love this. And he hated it. He said, no, no, that's not how my figure goes. You can't do that. Um, but I did it anyway. And people liked the dance. Um, and I've renamed it, but I can't remember off the top of my head what. Maybe I'll, I'll tell you for the notes or something. Okay. Like, um, wow. Um, anyway, he eventually changed his mind and he liked it. Um, but but when he first saw it was from me and he didn't like it. But Larry, he had he was very 
um, opinionated and wonderful, and his opinions were really always interesting and worth listening to, and I, I really appreciated him. But, um, but I, but I, he was also kind of a itchy kind of personality or something. Um, so I guess those were my some of my influences. Um, um, yeah, we haven't talked too much about your choreography. Uh, and you said you were working on some during the pandemic, but you've been writing dances throughout uh, yeah. your career, it sounds like. So I, I originally got interested in writing dances because I would come up with a need, like um, I would need a dance that did a certain thing and I would just sort of figure out something to do that would do that. Um, I think we talked about that with the, that dance where I had the kids running all the way around the circle. So that, that's an example of that. Um, they, the other thing that often would happen to me is I would really like a dance except for one thing, you know, like there would be something I, some nugget I would really like, but I didn't like the transition somewhere. I didn't like something that happened in it as much. And so I would be tweaking dances. And I don't know at what point you just call it folk process, at what point it becomes my dance, you know. I mean, that that's a really funny line, you know, like where does a dance become your own, especially when you only have 32 bars and lots of it's kind of taken up with obligatory stuff that people want to see in a dance, like a swing or whatever. Um, so it's, it's an interesting question. I'm not quite sure always. I've also more than once had the experience of writing a dance and then discovering to my chagrin that someone else wrote the same dance three or four years earlier, you know, um, <laughs> there's uh, one of my first triplets was an attempt to write a contra corner triplet to introduce contra corners in a context that was otherwise totally simple. So I, I wrote that dance and it was, I think, David's triplet number one. And then I decided, no, it wasn't very simple. It wasn't that easy. So I tried to simplify it further. Um, and, and, it, and I called that David's triplet number 1.5. And I really liked that one. And I, I still use it a lot. Um, so just this easy introduced Contra Corners triplet. Um, and I discovered that Linda Leslie wrote the same dance long before I did. She just calls it her corner triplet or something like that. Um, so when I introduce it, I say, and the, you know, the, the game with triplets where you say the number to get people to applaud as if they recognize it. This is Ted's triplet number 39 and everybody yells hooray as if they recognize it. Of course. Um, so I would introduce that as, and this is David's triplet number 1.5 and big applause. And then I'd say, um, of course, Linda Leslie wrote the same one before me, but I like this one better or, you know, <laughs> something like that. Anyway, um, and it's not the only dance where that's happened to me. Um, that but I, the limited vocabulary. So yeah, there's only exactly. so many combinations. Yeah. Although it's amazing how creative some people can be. And um, 
anyway, so I, I continue to, to do that. And during the pandemic, um, when I couldn't do much else, I wrote probably 60 dances or something like that. I wrote a lot of dances, more English than Contra. Um, English is a, a bit of a wider palette of kinds of tunes and kinds of things you can do. And, but I wrote lots of Contras as well. Um, and, you know, some of them I, I quite like. And so I had this large body of dances during the pandemic and no way to test them. Um, and so I've been gradually sneaking them into programs here and there and testing them out and, uh, and quietly discarding many of them. Um, on my website, I list dances as untested, beta, and tried and true. I have like three categories. And beta sometimes means that it's a, it could be quite a, a long-lived dance that I just haven't found the right home for, like a dance that's not the style, um, dances where it's proper and there's not a lot of swinging and stuff like that, um, that I still think are good choreography, but but I don't expect um, will get much use. And sometimes beta means I have no idea how to teach this. So the tried and true dances are all ones where I've had the experience of teaching it and people really liking it and it coming together that way. Um, when you write a dance, there's a an interesting ego thing that happens because people will tell you, oh, that was wonderful. And I will be looking at the floor and think, I don't think it was that wonderful, you know? So there's, there's, it's interesting to try and decide when a dance is really ready. And I'm not sure I always get that line right, but it's, that's all another interesting part for me. Um, I think ego is a big part of te teaching and calling in general. Um, I remember at a wonderful intensive class in square dance calling that Larry Edelman taught at Pinewoods one year that I was part of. And he talked about the caller's role as juggling, that you know, you have a lot of balls in the air and you have the band to pay attention to and the teaching and the prompting and the dancers where what are the levels and how mixed and is there a center set thing going on and all of these balls that are in the air and he said and then there's this one other ball that he calls the bowling ball so while you have all these other balls in the air you're also juggling the bowling ball which is your ego and mm. um, i thought that was a really interesting image because callers to get up and have the chutzpah to say I'm in charge of all of you people. And then, you know, to be there and you're, you're actually very vulnerable up there. Bruce Hamilton talks about this too in the English world. He talks about how dancers tolerate callers because it's the fastest way to get dancing. Um, and I love that. I love reminding myself that I've got a certain amount of goodwill. I can I can blow that pretty easily if I'm not careful. Um, so if I'm pushing people too far because I have an agenda, then uh, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna push that line too far. Um, it's, it's that's part some of very good body. wisdom. Yes. Yeah. And so, to me, all of that is tied up with that big bowling ball. I love it. Yeah. You're describing so many different ways that you're involved in the dance and music community. We've heard about calling and choreography and mentorship. Do you enjoy kind of trying out or or being of service in these different ways? What does it keep it interesting for you? It just sounds like you're you've, you've tried every corner that you can. Yeah, I I do like the different aspects of it because I just I, I guess that what it really boils down to is I love dancing and I want the dancing to go on. And at a certain point, I needed to be the caller because there was no caller to keep the dancing going on. And at another point, um, you know, I played the guitar and there was a, someone needed a guitar to make the band happen. So I, I did that because I wanted the dancing to go on. And I wrote the Chestnuts things, uh, articles and later the book because I love that kind of dancing and didn't want it to totally disappear and uh, wanted to write the sort of one thing that would excite people about that repertoire. And um, similarly, I got involved in my local dance community's board. It's, it's not really a board so much as a working committee that puts on the dances. Like we all, we, <laughs> we have this set of bylaws that I think is one page long. It's like we, we strove for what's the simplest bylaws we could have that would count legally as bylaws. And partly the, so the roles of the officers are described. And then there's a sentence about, and any of them can do any of the things that the other ones do. <laughs> because <laughs> whoever needs to do something has to do it for our small group to, to, to function. So that's the way our, uh, you know, I think that group works. And now, uh, so I, I did a stint on the board of CDSS in the early 2000s, and that was a six year stint. They had three year terms and you could re-up for two in a row. So I did that. Um, and then recently I was invited to rejoin the board of CDSS um, and I've become the president-elect of the board. So uh -huh. beginning, next, um, beginning next April, I'll be the president of the board. I'm, I'm very excited about that. I, I've been so enjoying my time on the board this year. The, the board members are all really engaged, committed, um, interesting people. Uh, really wanting to do great work. The, the executive director right now, Katie German, is a, a huge blessing to this organization. She's so steeped in the traditions and has her head screwed on right about so many things. Um, and uh, I'm just really excited to be getting to do that work too right now at this time. And it's a time when, you know, we just have all survived this um, period of time where 
there was so much uncertainty and um, unhappiness and inability to dance and how to keep things going is is a big priority of the organization right now how to support um, local organizations and affiliates of CDSS to to um, to thrive now that um, people are back dancing again. And, you know, there are a lot of controversies, as I think there always will be. Um, and CDSS can have a role in, in, um, in that. But I think one of the things I love about the board is how much we don't necessarily all agree that it's a, a Increasingly, it's a geographically diverse board and a, a board where people can bring different points of view and respectfully share them. And, um, and so we're an organization that will support folks wherever they are in these various um, culture conflicts um, within the culture of dance. I'm excited to be doing that. And congratulations. Look. Yeah. Thank you so much. We were we were talking about David Kaner before we started recording and and he has a wonderful passage that I've I'm sure I've mentioned on this this show already where uh in his calling for beginners by beginners book that he wrote he in in the introduction he just kind of talks about the the value of debate and sort of how our our dance communities can be a good place for debate that debate is healthy and you know i think he's kind of implying that practicing those skills within within our dance communities can also have an impact on on our larger communities maybe in it and the world, you know, it's a very, he goes big, but, but it's yeah, a great. He, he's right to do it. I mean, how many parts of our lives are all organized around this idea of joyful interaction? I mean, when we dance, why are we getting together except to do this beautiful thing that's been around forever and that keeps evolving and that involves people of many types and ages and places and kinds of musical background. And it's just so luscious of a world. Um, and I just hope people really appreciate the value of what we have. It's so precious. Very special. Oh, David, it's been so great to chat with you and get to indulge ourselves, as as we've said, yeah. <laughs> in our caller talk. Um, I usually close with three questions, so I might get us going in that sure. direction. And uh, the first one is to ask about your notation, your dance notation, because this is something, you know, when I thought about my interests in this in making this show, I one of the first things I was drawn to as a caller was, oh, that box of cards. You know, I don't know. I like, I like the sort of tangible aspect of them. I like handwriting things. You know, callers are 
keepers of, of a certain kind in terms of our, our dances and choreography. So I always like to ask people how, you know, both kind of physically, how do you, how do you keep your notation and how do you think about it? Yep. So I had a box of cards for many years and I would, I had little dividers for, you know, I don't know, proper, improper, other formations, um, easy ones, things like that. I didn't color code them. I just did that. And I would haul them out and I'd get them all mixed up and then I'd try and reclassify them. And I'd be confused about where to put them sometimes, which place a dance belong. Um, I went with three by five cards and then I went with bigger ones. And then um, computers came along and I started, um, putting all my dances into a database. I used different database programs um, at different times and then getting the database to print out cards. And then I would carry the cards to the gig and so on. I'd often lose cards. If, if I mean, you're looking at, through Zoom at my study and you're actually getting a view that makes it look tidier than it is. The, <laughs> my physical space is not as organized as I want it to be. And it never is. And, and the cards were driving me nuts because I would, I'd lose the important one. The coffee would spill. I don't know. Um, so I really liked once the computers became more prevalent, putting everything into a database. And um, I was an early adopter of, little devices that I could bring to the dance with me. Like I had a Palm Pilot. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. And I learned all the handwriting tricks to get it to do the thing. And there was a little database program that worked great on the Palm Pilot. And I used that, I put all my dances into that. And one of the things that I keep doing is re-putting my dances into new things. And that is actually quite useful because it reacquaints me with my repertoire and then I find myself weeding things and putting in new things and so I got Caller's Companion for my contra dances and I put them all in there and went through and uh, again weeded and sorted and so now they're all in there and I took all my English dances and there's a, a, a program called the Dancing Master which is also, it's a database, it's based on a spreadsheet actually, and uh, it's a shell. Both of these programs are shells. You have to put all the data in them. So um, all my English dances and my squares as well went into Dancing Master. And that's because Caller's Companion is really built around AADB, which is perfect for those millions of 32 bar contra dances but when you get into the english world it just is a lot it's a lot of square peg in a round hole um to try and put the dances into that program so dancing master is is a spreadsheet and you put a lot of data about each dance into that spreadsheet and then it creates the the output that you want like to here's the gig, here's the individual dances, that sort of thing. And it's based on having a PDF of your instructions. 
I just now put all my dances that aren't contra dances, that aren't the 32 bar structure, um, like lots of the squares and, and all the English stuff. I spent the pandemic putting them all there and reorganizing. And so I'm, I'm constantly playing with this. But as I say, doing that actually helps me because it keeps me thinking about the dances. I'll, you can't believe how many mistakes I find after, you know, 40 times of running this dance through some editing process, you think I would have the directions correct. And there's still times where I say, oh, wait a minute. That couldn't possibly be 1973 when she wrote that dance. She wasn't even alive, you know, <laughs> or 1917 or whatever I had. Um, uh, so it's the the caller is as sort of archivist and yeah. and uh, database manager. <laughs> yeah, and you know, wait a minute, isn't there a a dosi do there? Oh yeah, of course. You know, it's just amazing. So. And it's funny because I'm at the dance and I do it right. And the notes don't have it right sometimes. But anyway, I, it's an ongoing process. But that's how I keep my notes at the moment. Who knows 10 years, five years from now. At the moment, they're in those two big electronic programs. And I take my iPad with me to the dance. Um, and the silliest part of this is I mostly use my notes for planning. I almost never look at notes at the dance because mm. um, I feel like I, when I get to the dance, I like to be prepared enough that I really know the, the dances on my program. So uh, occasionally I have a moment of panic and I look at the thing and I'm usually seeing just what I was saying anyway, but um, it's reassuring to have it there, but I, I almost never look at it anymore. Um, and I've gotten myself in trouble by not wanting to look at my notes, you know, trying to be the caller who doesn't need notes. I've given up on that as my brain ages. I say, no, I'll have them there, but, but I, I don't refer to them often. Mm -hmm. Good to have them there, but that's, that's admir admirable to just be able to be present without that. Well, there's, so many, or something there's in between. so many balls in the air, as it were, you know, already yes. that, that I don't want another one. I, I have trouble juggling the ones I've juggling already. Yeah. Ah, oh, I love it. Um, my next question is, do you have any pre or post gig rituals, things that you kind of do to get ready to get on stage and then kind of wind down after? Yeah, well, the pre-gig ritual for me starts weeks in advance with prep, honestly. I just, I, I am very obsessive about, like, I'll, I'll organize my program and then reorganize it. Um, in the English world, we send the tunes to the band before the dance because the, the dances all require particular tunes. In the contra world, I do that too, to some extent. If I want a singing square, if I want a chestnut that needs a particular tune, I make sure that band is comfortable with that, uh, or I'll change the program to leave that out. So I'll be playing with my program. I'll, I'll have changed it three times, and bands know this from me now. They, they roll their eyes. 
I'll send them a list. And then two days later, I'll say, oh, I, I want to do this instead. Um, I, I try and curb that. But um, so I'm, I'm obsessive about prep. Um, because when I get to the dance, I want to do that. If I'm driving to a dance, like, um, you know, often in upstate New York, you're, you're going to be at over an hour in the car to get to a gig unless it's right here in our local community. Uh, I, I'm often putting music on and calling the dances um, in the car, you know, just to feel like, yeah, I really know that one. I'm, I'm good. Um, and then when I walk into the hall, I put all that aside. I'm done prep. I've done it. I'm, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. And I just um, chat people up. A, uh, you know, I chat with the band, I chat with whatever organizers, I chat with dancers, I just uh, try and be a person present at, at that moment. <laughs> um, after the dance, uh, nothing that I can think of that's consistent. Um, you know, uh, I'm often really buzzy after a dance, like I've after I've called a dance, I'm so excited. My mind is racing. I'm so interested in everything that happened. And if I have a long drive home, that often gets me at least half of the way home without coffee or worrying about anything else. Um, but I don't have any particular ritual there. It's just whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. And then my last question, if you know, is whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. Um, A little sociology project on the side here. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know if I am sure about that. I, there are certainly times I feel um, overwhelmed and need to um, just find a quiet place and be myself. And that feels introverted, but I, I do love chatting people up and there, there are people I know who are just able to work the party in a way that's amazing. So I'm, I think I'm in the middle of that spectrum somewhere. I, I'm not sure I lean too far one way or the other. So. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's been interesting to me that, that, uh, callers can be yeah anywhere along oh absolutely along that spectrum um wonderful well thank you so much david i really loved getting to talk with you and um congratulations again on your your appointment to the cdss board um as their next president they are lucky to have you thank you mary and i just want to add that the things I share with you in this podcast. I'm so thrilled to be part of it, but they're my views. They're not necessarily reflecting the organization, CDSS. I know Ben Williams says that at the end of each podcast, but I just wanted to emphasize that even more because of my upcoming role as president of the board. Thanks again. Thanks so much to David for talking with me. You can check out the show notes for today's episode at cdss.org slash podcasts. 
This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and it's produced by Ben Williams and me, Mary Wesley. Thanks to Great Meadow Music for the use of the tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzachowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit cdss.org podcasts for more info. Happy dancing! The views expressed in this podcast are of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of CDSS.